If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, uh, the gospel according to Moses, found in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 7 through 9 and 18 through 25 in just a moment. Again, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 7. Again, we are so glad uh, to be together with you uh, once again. Uh, we're thankful uh, that we are live streaming this service. We know we still have a number of people that have chosen to worship with us in that fashion. So we're glad that you're with us as well. Uh, but it's really good uh, to see folks, uh, to see, uh, uh, again, the evidence of God's grace on your faces as we gather together. I suspect that all of you have heard me say something uh, to the effect uh, that there's uh, not a marriage out there, there's not a family out there that couldn't do with just a little coaching. Uh, they could all be improved with just a little bit of coaching. Uh, my wife doesn't need a, to give us a hearty amen at uh, this point. But uh, that, that is simply a, a truth. It's true of life. Uh, my brother has been building houses for 50 years. And he'll tell you, there's things that he can improve upon. In fact, uh, we talk a lot of times uh, on Sunday afternoon. Uh, we're kind of, what's the sister's name on Andy Griffith that talk on Sunday afternoon? Uh, we're like them. Anyway, we talk on Sunday afternoons. And he will tell me something about how they're doing a particular uh, construction procedure and say, that's not the way we used to do it when I was growing up. Things change. Things improve. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be growing. And, and most particularly, within the realm of our marriage. Uh, you notice the, the sermon title, the series title, The Essential Family. Oh, the family's necessary. It's essential. It is an essential part of God's uh, economy. We've heard a, a lot of talk in these last few days about that which is essential uh, to our economy. Well, again, I want to say to you that marriage and family is essential to uh, God's economy. And so uh, we're in the second sermon of our, our series and we want to talk about this original community designed by God for his compatible complementary image bearers. Uh, the reality of, of marriage. And God has created us. He has designed marriage and we are not free, either as the church or as a culture, to reinvent, redesign, to reorient that which God has created for His glory, for our well-being. And so let's think about uh, this great truth today, that marriage, again, is a good gift. It's a good gift given to those who bear His image. And it's given to us so that we may live and share in community with one another. Read in verse 7, if you will, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then verse 18. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to uh, the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pray with me this morning. Father, once again, we thank you for your truth. God, we preach it for your glory. Uh, we would pray that for the sake of your name, your spirit would uh, apply these things to our lives, convict us where there's conviction needed, comfort us where there's comfort needed, and empower us, Lord, uh, so that we may obey you for, for our good and, again, for your own glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good. Uh, this morning uh, I had a, a little bit of an a amen section there in the back with uh, my grandson. and It's good to have you all here today so that I can have a, uh, an amen section uh, uh, here uh, with these fine young men echoing my words. So uh, again, we're glad to have the children in here with us today. That they may hear the Word of God with their families. And again, hopefully you will go home. And you will talk about these things to uh, your children. It seems to me that in the culture, that the culture is wrong about God. They're wrong about the Bible. They're wrong about humanity. They're wrong about sexuality. Therefore, they're wrong about marriage and the family. But more tragic than the errors of the culture, it seems like we, the church, are increasingly inclined to embrace the world's view of that which God has given to us for our good, for His glory. That is, we become confused about all of these same things. The God, the Bible, humanity, sexuality, marriage, and family. These things are all fundamental. You know, I, I talked a moment ago about coaching. And if you were to subject yourself to an instructor in any discipline, whether it was to learn how to play golf or learn how to measure a piece of property. Uh, the question of, of source. Where, where are you getting your information? Who's the source of your information and your authority? And we, the church, need to understand that God and God alone is the source of our authority. And His Word to us is absolutely final. We're, we're not free uh, to say, well, you know, 
I think I'm going to rewire this thing. I'm going to rework this thing. I, I, I think it's uh, fine to be involved in uh, uh, multiple relationships. I think it's fine for uh, there to be same-sex couples. I think it's fine to go down all of these different uh, avenues and corridors, it seems, that we are hell-bound on pursuing as a culture. But yet, God in His wisdom, for our own good, he has designed marriage to function, uh, to be ordered in a very particular way. And it's not up to us to reshuffle things as we might see fit. And so, if we would know God's best, and I love the term, human flourishing. God wants you to be eternally joyful. Now, that's not the same thing as the prosperity gobbledygook that is, you know, uh, God wants you to be wealthy and, you know, if you have enough faith, all your sicknesses are going to be... I'm not talking about that junk. I'm simply saying that God has created you and He has certainly redeemed you from your sin so that you may know a joy for all of eternity and a joy that will break into your life even right now. And a joy that can be experienced in this most intimate, most powerful, most fundamental, most essential of relationships, that being namely marriage. And so let's look, first of all, beginning in verse 7, man in the garden, we touched on this last week because you really cannot talk about marriage until you talk about the reality of humanity, the reality of our being created in the image of God. And in verse 7 we get a, an enhanced account of how God came to create these beings, these creatures that are defined, identified as image bearers, those that bear the image of God. He took that which is the lowliest of the elements. If you uh, were to look in the Scriptures and see how dust is used in various places in Scripture, it is the, the, the lowest, the most basic of things that could be utilized. And so God stoops down and used that which is the lowest of all things He could utilize. And he forms the man seemingly as a sculptor would form a shape. And then he does this miraculous thing. He breathes into him the breath of life. Now it would be wrong for us to say that God created us to be divine. That's not what it means to receive the breath of life. But he does uniquely breathe into us innate qualities. And we talked about what it means to bear the image of God. God designed us for that which He has assigned to us. To fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to, to be stewards of the earth, and to populate His earth, to represent Him on the face of His earth for His glory. And so we find man being placed in that which is called a garden in Eden. If you read commentaries on the book of Genesis, and you should, um, many people speculate as to the where. We, we have a, a description here that includes two known rivers, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The, the other rivers are not really known to us. And one of the things that I believe happened in the flood is the topography of the earth was completely reshaped. And so rivers that may have been in existence at the time of Adam's life may have not even been in existence by the time Moses writes to us. And so, 
we know where the Tigris and Euphrates are. And so likely the garden was probably in the southern portion, maybe even close to what we uh, know as modern-day Baghdad or ba ancient Babylon. Uh, it's likely, not definitively, we don't know for sure, but you know, not something we need to split the church over where the Garden of Eden was, okay? But very likely that may be where it was. And, and so Adam was in a place of security, a place of safety, in a place of satisfaction, okay? Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to talk about how great marriage is, and you're going to leave here today and say, well, why is mine so hard? Well, we're going to get to that next week, okay? That's chapter 3, okay? We'll talk about that, the implications of the fall for marriage. But marriage is a great thing, and, and God has created the man, the male of the species at this point, and he's placed him in this garden. He's assigned him the task, okay, of managing this garden, and he is secure. He is safe and he's satisfied. Now let me say this. I hear a lot of talk about, you know, we're not going to do this or that or the other until it's safe. Now please hear me when I say this. Safety, security, and satisfaction was lost when humanity was banned from the Garden of Eden. The world has not been safe. It never has been since that day, and it never will be. Other than our security, our safety, and our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. You, you know, I like to use big fancy words occasionally, just because it shows, you know, I went to that Beeson Divine School down there on the other end of town. And, and you know, so, so you all know that you know, you're paying me the big bucks. I got, the, I got all the degrees and all that stuff. And, and, and so uh, I'll, I'll talk about the existential angst. Man is longing. He's longing for that which was lost when he lost the garden. He's longing for security, safety, and satisfaction. I'm not going to quote the Rolling Stones about satisfaction. I usually do when I, when I, when I mention that, but I'm not going to do that this, this time. But there is no security, safety, or satisfaction outside of the garden other than what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and it is great but apart from Christ we're looking for those things and particularly that which satisfies that that which solves that which aches within our souls it's often been said uh, or described as that God-shaped void Augustine spoke of we were created for you and again I, we will long we will ache until until that that ache is satisfied in you and so we're looking I think every perversion and every addiction, everything, everything, is simply man's longing for that which was lost. He's looking, again, as the old country song goes, he's looking in all the wrong places. Instead of looking, I'm not saying that every man is looking for Jesus. He is not. But he's looking for that which only Jesus can fill. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. So he was in the perfect situation. He had a place. He had a purpose. He had a special relationship with God. He was given this assignment. You see there in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, it is not uncommon to find people with a bad attitude about work. I hate my work. I don't want to work. Or sometimes even all I do is work. That's all I care about. Either... Either I'm, you know, I'm so good at it and it just allows me to be away from the family and those really weighty responsibilities, so I just stay at work. 
But there's all kinds of ways that work gets perverted. But work is a good gift. It is a part of the mandate to rule and subdue the creation that God has entrusted to us as his stewards. And so we are given this assignment that we are to trust God, we are to obey Him, we are to worship Him by, by keeping the garden. And then we're given this one prohibition, this obligation to not eat of the tree described as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a lot of commentators will look at this and say, this is really a covenantal arrangement. I mean, we, we find the, the, the parties identified. We, cite, we see the obligations that are placed upon each party. We see the rewards, and we see the warnings. It's all in there. And so it can be rightly said that Adam was placed under a covenant of works. Do this, and you'll live. Obey me, and you'll live. You have access to the tree of life. It's interesting the Bible is bookended by the mentions of the tree of life in Genesis and Revelation. In eternity, we'll have access to the tree of life. We lost the tree of life when we lost the garden. And so, we, we are there, or Adam is there. He's under a covenant arrangement or a covenantal arrangement with God. He is to honor God, and should he obey God, he will live. He is given meaningful and fulfilling work and he is going to be satisfied in that which he does. Have you ever known anybody? Don't raise your hand. You ever known anybody that over the course of two or three or four or five years over what is a relatively short period of time, they've had eight jobs and every boss is a complete idiot and every, every, everything about the job is wrong? You, you know what I'm talking about? You ever met that person? I, I, I've met a lot of people like that over, over the years. Adam's work was completely fulfilling and satisfying. He, he saw the, the fruit of his hands being, being productive. And so, again, he's given a, a pristine situation, a great assignment. He's under God's obligation. And so God, as he observes Adam carrying out the assignment, and we find uh, that described uh, there is uh, uh, going out and uh, naming the animal kingdom. Quite, a, quite an endeavor. Now, it would be my guess that there weren't 413 breeds of dogs in the Garden of Eden. There weren't Pekingese, German Shepherds, Collies, Poodles, Mastiffs, and Bulldogs, and whatever, you know. It's probably just a dog. Probably just a dog. And so Adam said, Dog. Elephant, bird, whatever, I, I don't know. But, again, it's there to remind us Adam is a steward and he has a delegated authority over the created order. He gets to name it. When you name something that establishes you have authority, you named your children. Just as an aside, when a man and woman gets married, the woman takes the husband's name. It's a reminder that she is now under his authority. Kind of part of the way we do things. So, God says, though, that the man, having been cre created, having been, uh, had the breath of life breathed into him, he's bearing God's image, he's upright, he's morally and spiritually upright, he's in the right relationship with God. But God says, 
in verse 18 is simply not good that the man should be alone. Now, do not think that God was so overwhelmed with the work of creation that he goes, son of a gun, I forgot to make a companion for Adam. What was I thinking? Let me, let me, ah, there's no spare parts left around here. I, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to... Now, I, I'm deeply convinced, and you know, I get this question occasionally, you know, does God change his mind, and da-da-da-da-da. The answer is no, okay? But this is a literary device, okay, to help us understand the greatness of how God resolves this particular situation. Even the whole, uh, okay, Adam named all the animals and so forth and so on, but, but there wasn't anybody like him to be his companion. That's to create a kind of tension. How is God going to resolve this? It was a part of God's plan from the beginning that he would remedy the not good situation. And so his resolution, I will make. I will make. I'm going to give to Adam a very, very good gift. Adam is astute enough. He has been involved with uh, overseeing the creation. He's seen all the pairs, all the mates. He's, he's seen the, the male and the female of the various species, and, uh, and they're uh, doing their thing together. And he's probably, hmm, yeah, I'm going to be doing this alone. Now, I think Adam is fully satisfied in God. I mean, he's not just wringing his hands over, I ain't got nobody like me. I don't think that's what's going on. Because God has satisfied every longing of Adam. Okay? But God's going to make it even better. God's going to make it even better. And so, we find God determines that I'm going to make him this helper suitable to him. You see that there in verse 21, we see the description of what God does. That he creates what we already know from the creation account of chapter 1, verses 28, 26 through 28. He creates a fellow image bearer. Again, the language tells us that the man and the woman both bear the image of God. There's an equality of essence, of, of being of identity, equal value before God, equal worth as human beings, okay? And so God creates this complementary partner that is described as a helper fit for him. And I have to always say, not a helper to give him a fit, okay? Y'all got that? Remember that one. Not a helper to give him a fit, but the language is not only helper, but it's very much like him. The, the Hebrew konegdo, like what is in front of him. In other words, they're kind of, in a sense, mirror images. Not exactly, but in essential qualities, they are. They both have physicality, they both have souls, and they both have spirituality. We went into all of that last week. So, he creates this complementary partner that is going to be his helper, and she is suitable. She's very much like him, and she is created from Adam, for Adam, and given by God to Adam. Now, the New Testament, we all know, was written post-fall, okay, post-fall, after, after sin entered the realm, 
thousands of years. But the New Testament still makes a big deal over this idea of the creation order and what God has established in the home. I don't, I don't really want to get into that too much today. But if you want to read 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, you find, in fact, I find men a lot of times we love to talk about that, you know, well, you know, it's the woman's fault that sin entered the world. She took the fruit and she ate and da-da-da-da-da. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's a man's fault. He was created first. That's what he says. He was in charge. He had authority in that first home. And he abdicated that role. He allowed the woman to usurp his authority and sin entered the realm, but it was his fault. It was his fault. Sin entered through Adam's failure. Okay, And so what I'm getting at, it's this creation order and this design is still good. It still stands even despite our fall into sin. And so the woman is created and given as a good gift and, and is, is received as a good gift. And so we find in 22 through 25 that God officiates at what is ultimately the first wedding. I mentioned the bookends of the tree of life. It's interesting also there's two other bookends weddings the Bible opens with a wedding the Bible closes with a wedding in Revelation the marriage supper of the Lamb and so marriage is a big deal biblically speaking marriage is a big big deal it is it is woven into the design of humanity it's woven into the fabric of of culture and history and so marriage is so vitally important and so we find there in verse uh, 22 or let's, let's step back into verse 21 I'm sorry God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep and he performed this first surgery now I don't know if that was an essential surgery or a non-essential surgery, okay? I'm not sure that that was within the, the modern boundaries and confines. I was told yesterday that somebody went to one of our esteemed medical institutions. They were in crisis. They were examined. It was discovered. They had three heart, or heart uh, vein blockages, okay? They, they, they needed something done. But it was determined only two were life-threatening and therefore essential. So they unblocked two and left the other one blocked for him to come back later. Now, I'll tip my hat to Heath a little bit. I'm from Somerville, Georgia. And that means I'm not the smartest knife or sharpest knife in the drawer. But I don't know if that made sense or not. they got to poke another hole in that guy to fix the third one. I don't know. Well, anyway, God performs the first surgery. It is an essential thing. He, he places the man in sleep. God, listen, so much of what God does to bless us, there, there, there is a, a place where we join with God and we work with God and He blesses us, but so many times God just blesses us. It's unilateral. He's just determined He's going to bless us. It's kind of like in the new birth. You really don't have a role in the new birth. 
God just regenerates you. He just makes you alive where you were dead. So Adam is asleep, and he draws from his side a rib, and he takes and he, 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 he very meticulously forms this mate, this fellow image bearer, uh, the one that shall be the female of humanity, or the female image bearer. And so we're told that after fashioning her, that he brings her to the man. Now, one of the things that endures, and I think it's rooted right here in, in the, the biblical description, is that God, the loving Heavenly Father, brings the bride and gives her to the husband. You ever seen that happen before? Now, you see, I happen to be the father of two very beautiful daughters. And I've had the privilege of giving the Stradivarius to the gorilla two different times. And you understand that. You know, nobody's ever good enough for your little girl. But that's what that represents. Again, you're entrusting, and God has entrusted to Adam his daughter. And it's a beautiful picture. And it's beautifully reenacted in the typical wedding service. Who gives this woman? As my father has given to me, I now give her. Yeah. Really, really a, a, neat, a neat thing. And so she, she is brought to the man, and the man begins to speak. And I, I, folks, I think this is the first love song. Who was it that sang just an old-fashioned love song? Three Dog Night? Is that right? I have to get my expert over here. Yeah. Yeah. Just an old-fashioned love song. But that... Adam, he, he doesn't have the language to describe. Now, and let's get this right, because so many times, oh, God, thank you for giving me good stuff. But we're more appreciative for the good stuff than for the giver of the good stuff. We should be thankful just to God, period, no matter what the stuff is. And so Adam is proclaiming his appreciation to God for being God. And then secondarily for giving to him this wonderful gift. And so he speaks over and he recognizes her. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And this, this is a, a language that's used in covenants later on in the course of Scripture to, to identify kind of this joining together, to, to join in a mutual obligation. And so he says, man, I see things I recognize. I see some things I've never seen before too. And I like the whole package. I like that whole package. God, you did good. You're wise and you're great. And you're to be praised for your goodness to me. It's interesting now, in his unfallen state, he rightly gives praise and worship to God. When sin enters, what's the first thing he does? He blames God. That woman you gave to me. My, my, my. My, my, my. How quickly things change. So, notice here too, the man determines she shall be called woman. Okay, and he explains why. Because she was taken out, out of the man. But, but again, what does it remind us of? The design of the home is for the man to function in authority. 
in my 25 years as, as a pastor. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't do a whole lot of counseling. I, I guess I would like to. But when people come for marriage counseling and they tell me they're not happy, I say, well, what difference does that make? What's that got to do with being married? You know, it's kind of a turnoff, you know, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, you know, that the idea is that God has established order in the home. And we don't want to hear about that. That, uh, that all roles, even our sexual gender identity, it's all inter- you know, entertained. We can exchange one for the other. God says no. God has placed the husband in, in, in authority. And probably the number one complaint I get from women, I wish my husband would lead me. I wish he would be my loving authority. That, that in authority he would protect me. See, Adam failed because he didn't protect Eve from the serpent. And so husbands, and I say this to myself, listen, there's nothing, there's nothing probably in all of Scripture that doesn't buckle my knees more than the admonitions to fatherhood and husbandhood. If, you, if I want to know how bad a sinner I am, all I have to do is turn to the pages of Scripture. Yeah. Thank God for His gospel. Thank God for his gospel. And so, Adam praises God. He, he, he praises the woman. You're something else. And I like what you are. And I love the God. And I praise the God who has given you to me. I was alone in this endeavor. And now somebody that's going to be like me is going to share in this great endeavor of life with me. And see, in, in this thing we call marriage, there, 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 there's a, a joining. In fact, you see the commentary in 24 and 25. Because the woman is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, because she's identified as, as the woman, therefore, you know, wherefore the therefore, why is the therefore, we're, we're linking things up, then a, then a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh, and the man and his woman were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So, marriage by design, has a a physical aspect, a a, a body aspect. Man is body, soul, and spirit, okay? And so in marriage, two distinct individuals, they are joined bodily, okay? In that that one flesh union expressed in in their sexuality. In fact, even today, a marriage that is not physically consummated is not a marriage. You can do what's called what? An annulment. It's as if it never happened, okay? And, and so the physical bodily aspect is important to a marriage being a marriage. And then there's a, the soul aspect. This is where it really gets difficult. The, 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 the uniting, the thinking together of the mind, uh, the, the growing of the intellect uh, together, the, the, the engaging of the will together to have a home that honors God. We will do this. Together, we will. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. You see, we 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 as an exercise of our will under God's authority, under the leadership of the designated leader within the home, the man. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We're going to worship Him. Okay, and, and so again, there is this body, and then then soul, and then spirit. 
Now, I would not argue that when an unbeliever marries a believer that they're not married. They obviously are. But there's something that will always be missing within that marriage when you have what sometimes is referred to as being unequally yoked. What's the first thing you ask a couple when they come in for uh, you know, premarital counseling? Well, the thing you ask them, I want to hear your testimony. I want to hear, are both of you believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I didn't say, are you church members? Did you go to Sunday school as a kid? Or, you know, so forth, so on. Are you both passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I have an interesting thing. Uh, some of you have heard me say this before. But occasionally, whether it's friends or family or, or whatever, uh, I will get asked to do a, a wedding. Uh, and again, you know, when people from outside of the church ask me to do a wedding, you know, you, you kind of like, why you want me? But, but anyway, but I always ask them the same question. And if I discern that they're both unbelievers, I'll say, you know what, I don't think the Bible prohibits two pagans getting married, so I'll marry you. But you've got to listen to about Jesus for about five hours for the next few weeks. I'll trade that. You're going, you're going to hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. And at the end of the day, you still want me to marry you. I guess I will. I don't know that there's anything in the Bible about that. But for a marriage to be all that it can be, to be the joyful experience that God desires for it to be, two believers joined together spiritually so that they worship our Lord together in spirit and in truth. And so what we see here too is the idea of therefore the man shall leave father and mother. There is a reordering that must take place. One of the problems we have church and culture is my generation. We're a problem. Our children are a problem. <laughs> Helicopter parents. Y'all know the term? We have hovered over our kids protected them from every scraped knee and bloody nose. You know, they've, they've gone over the season and they get a trophy this high for participating. You know, we, we, we've, we've affirmed everything about them. They're accustomed to, you know, living in the nanny state, you know, for lack of a better term. And then it comes time for them to get married and they can't leave and cleave. They, they, they can't reorder their lives. Okay? I was under the authority of my parents, rightly so, until the day I married, or at least until I became an adult. And now, there's another priority. There, there's a new order. Particularly for the wife. The, my father is no longer really the ultimate authority in my life. My husband is. And for the man, it's not what mom and daddy want so much anymore. It's what, how do I live in accord with my wife in a way that honors God. And so, we really have a problem with this concept. To reorder, to join together and to, to become this, this one flesh. To, to think and act together as a compatible unit complementing one another. Design, we've talked about this before, we're not, we don't have time today, but again, the, the complementary roles that, are, that we've been designed to carry out. And so, God 
creates a family, creates marriage. It's God's idea. It's God's design. We're not free to adapt, to tweak to our modern sensibilities. The final thing, very quickly, God's Word and God's institution is designed for permanence. Till death do us part. What God has joined together, let not man divide. That's Jesus' own words. Its purpose, well, we can see, we've talked a lot about, uh, it, it, it is necessary, it's essential to God's economy. Man and woman, they come together, they flourish, they populate the earth for the purpose of ruling and subduing the earth. But let me tell you, and get this, and we'll talk about this more in future days. There's that functional purpose. But get this. The ultimate purpose of marriage is expounded in Ephesians 5, 31-32. Paul talks, goes at length about talking about marriage and then he gives us a therefore and he explains this. My point is that you understand that marriage represents Christ and His church. That's why I can look at people. That's why I can look at couples and they say, oh, we're not happy. And I say, I don't care. I don't really care. Because you're staying together and growing in grace. And growing in grace. Doing this thing God's way. It proclaims the gospel. Has Christ ever forsaken his bride? You get the picture? That's just a glimpse of it. But it's ultimate purpose. That allows us to endure. I, I said it earlier. <laughs> I said it all the time. Hey, none of us real bargains to live with. I'm not. I'm not. You know, we, I, I always say, you know, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That's a tragedy. The miracle is 100% of them don't. Yeah, it's tough. So there is a purpose. There's a greater purpose. It makes marriage even better. It's priority, again, to communicate, to illustrate, to dramatize God's great gospel. And then next time when we come back, again, if it's such a good idea, why is it so hard? Why does it drive me crazy sometimes? Why does it keep me up at night? We'll look at that. The essential family. It is an essential service in the economy. Marriage is a great idea. It'll work. It will work according to God's plan. And so my, my prayer it's through the power of God's Holy Spirit. He would illuminate our minds and guide us in and empower us for obedience so that the gospel may be not only clearly heard, that's important, that's absolutely necessary, but it will at least be supplemented by being seen in our lives. Pray with me if you will. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for the revelation of your will to us, the revelation of yourself to us. And Lord, what you've given to us as a good gift. May we be stewards, wise and faithful stewards, of that which you've entrusted to us for our good, for our pleasure, and for your own glory. Uh, bless us as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.